Hi listeners, I'm Zoe. And I'm Madden. And we're not sick anymore. But you're listening to the Unnamed Dope Podcast. And today I'm bringing you the stories of the remaining unidentified victims of Randy Kraft. We started their stories last week, but felt we needed two weeks to give them the coverage they deserve. These are the stories of the men who were more than a score. Like I said, we started these stories last week, but there was just too much information for one episode. So here we are with part two of the men who are more than a score. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I recommend going back and listening to that episode first. But if you want to start here, you do you. Just to refresh everyone, Madden, could you give a brief overview of last week's episode? Yeah, so last week we covered the monster that is Randy Kraft. He was a horrible serial killer who was active in the 70s and 80s. He was only convicted of 16 of his murders, but it's suspected that he had at least 67 victims. Since we are the Unnamed Doe podcast, we're bringing you the stories of the unidentified victims of Randy Kraft. And last week, we talked about the first unidentified victim from Wilmington, California, but you said he has four total unidentified victims, right? Yes, and we're going to talk about those cases today. The first victim we are going to talk about today is also from Wilmington, California. This story starts on April 22nd, 1973. However, his discovery took several days. That's a little strange. How come it took a couple days? Where was he found at? According to the Doe Network, green trash bags were found discarded throughout Wilmington, California. NamUs says, quote, multiple green plastic bags along the Terminal Island Freeway, end quote. An article I found in the Los Angeles Times from 1988 describes where these bags were found along the Terminal Island Freeway. This article says his, quote, torso was found at Almeida Street and Henry Fort Avenue in Wilmington. His right leg was found on the Terminal Island Freeway at Anaheim Street in Wilmington. His arms were found on the Terminal Island Freeway in Long Beach. His head was found at 7th Street and Rendondo Avenue in Long Beach. His left leg was found behind Broom Hilda's, a bar where Kraft worked in Sunset Beach, end quote. It seems that the trash bags were pretty much found all centrally along the Terminal Island Freeway, but in very different spots. What were the state of the remains that were found in the trash bags? As disgusting as it is, they were all dismembered and mutilated. That's disgusting. I don't even really have words. That's just so gross. It's absolutely disgusting. The fact that someone can be so awful to another human is something I'll never understand. Was anything found with the victim in any of the bags? According to NamUs, nothing was found with the decedent. However, the Doe Network says, quote, a business card for a Covina, California pool table service and repair shop was found inside one of the bags, end quote. First off, that's kind of strange that Doe Network says that there was a business card found, but NamUs doesn't have anything listed. It's always weird when our sources don't agree with each other. I have found that a lot recently where NamUs and the Doe Network, they don't have necessarily conflicting information, But the Doe Network seems to have a lot more detailed information, and I'm not 100% sure why. I have noticed that they link their sources in the description, so maybe they're just pulling from every resource that they can find, and NamUs is just what people input. But it's still so strange, because it's important details of the case that you would think somebody who's in charge of the case on NamUs would know that information and would put it in NamUs. If I had to guess, I would say that the investigators weren't releasing that information at the time. 
But when the Doe Network updated their site, they found a source that said it. And so they added it. But the NamUs has never been updated. That would make sense. So my second comment is that whether this business card was actually there or not, that's a really odd thing to find in a bag with a body part, just a random business card for a pool table repair service. Yeah, I agree. It's really weird. I don't know if it was crafts or the victims. I really have no idea about anything with this business card. And it's just really mentioned on the Doe Network. I haven't really seen anything about it. It's weird. So beyond maybe that card, was there anything else? Nothing else was recovered in these bags. Did they find all of the body parts? Were they all recovered? Or was this not a complete set of human remains? They did not find all the remains. The victim's hands were actually never recovered. That feels really intentional. Yep. That feels so intentional. His killer did not want him being fingerprinted or identified. You don't hide someone's hands for any other reason. Yep. It's strange. Well, that makes me think that maybe he had a personal connection to Kraft. Because I didn't even think about that. I just feel like the only reason you go to such lengths to keep them from being identified is if they have a personal link to you and it'll be traced right back to you. Right. That's a really fair point that I didn't even think of. My other thought was just maybe the bags weren't found. Like if they were trash bags, maybe somebody just threw them away and didn't think anything about it. That's fair. How long had the victim been deceased prior to being discovered? The general consensus that is listed on the source material is one or more days prior. One or more? That seems really vague and kind of like it could be any amount of time. There is something strange about the time since death in this case. According to the Doe Network, it seems that there were signs that the victim had been refrigerated or frozen before being placed in the bags. Yeah, that really can mess up a time of death. Right. Because of this, the time since death could be very off, and it makes sense why it's one or prior days. I saw this on the Don't Network, but not really anywhere else, but it's interesting and disturbing and disgusting nonetheless. Do we know if he kept any other of his victims in a fridge or freezer? I'm actually not 100% sure on that. Do we know if he had access to a large fridge or freezer? I have no idea if he had access to a large fridge or freezer, but he was dismembered and mutilated. So it would have been reasonable to assume that he could have put them in a normal fridge or freezer, which is disgusting. Yeah, I have no further comments about this because it's just gross. Were they able to get a physical description since the remains were dismembered? Actually, yeah. They think this John Doe was between 17 and 25. He was white. He was 5'2 to 5'10, 135 to 169 pounds. He had brown hair with wavy curls that were up to five inches long and a thin, fine mustache with brown eyes. That sounds really not super distinctive. Was there anything distinguishing from his features? Actually, yeah, there are some distinguishing features. The Doe Network says, quote, possible small mole on right side of neck below right ear, end quote. NamUs also says this. However, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Doe Network also say that he had a scar on his lower abdomen that was probably from a cystotomy. What is that? I was expecting you to say from an appendectomy or something like that, but what is a cystotomy? A cystotomy is an incision related to bladder surgery. So this John Doe probably had bladder surgery. That would mean there's a medical record, right? I would think so. Do you know how common that surgery is? I'm not 100% sure. I think they're kind of common, but I think there's different kinds. I did a quick Google search and couldn't find a whole lot that told me about how common they were. Honestly, it pulled up stuff about pets, which said they were common, 
but this is a person, so I really don't know, and I don't have a solid answer for you. All right, that's interesting. Do we have a reconstruction of what he might have looked like? I actually have two reconstructions. I just sent you the first sketches of the victim, if you don't mind describing them to our listeners. These are the original sketches. I'm looking at actually three pictures. It's like a panel of pictures, so you've got one side profile, a front-facing picture, and then the other side profile. The two side profiles are completely different looking people. Those are not the same person in my eyes. They look nothing alike. I agree 100%. And they're from the same angle, just different sides, so I don't understand what's going on there. His front profile looks pretty standard. It's just a sketch. It's not as detailed as the reconstructions we've seen in the past. He has lower set eyebrows and kind of deep set eyes, and they look pretty hooded too. He doesn't have much of an eyelid. He has a medium nose. It's not big. It's not small. It's not narrow or anything, but he does have really wide lips and they're kind of downturned at the corners too. He also has a really big forehead. Yes, he does. It might be a receding hairline. He kind of looks like he has a widow's peak, especially from the sides. So now that we've looked at the original sketches, let's look at the reconstructions from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Madden, can you describe and compare and contrast these images to the first ones I gave you? My first impression is just how much better these are. They're just on a completely different level. They look like a person? These look like a person. They look like a photograph, which is because they're digitally rendered using Photoshop and postmortem images all meshed together. So it's a really realistic image. I'm sure this is really close to what he looked like before death. It actually looks like he has some slight stubble on his face, which is interesting. He did have a thin mustache. Yes, you did say that. It looks like his nose might be just slightly crooked. His eyes are a little downturned, still pretty hooded with low eyebrows. His lips are way smaller than in the original sketch. And then the nose looks pretty similar. Other than that, though, I mean, it's just a really good reconstruction. Definitely. And like we said last week with the reconstruction, I feel like this could be anyone you know. I also feel like this doe looks younger than the doe we talked about last week. Were they in the same age range? I don't remember. Yes, the age range was 17 to 25 for both of them, I believe. Interesting. He does look younger than the other one. Obviously, it's amazing that they were able to get such a great reconstruction from his remains, but did the autopsy confirm a cause of death or anything like that? Yeah, so the cause of death for this doe was strangulation, which, as we've said, is one of the primary ways that Kraft was known to kill his victims. Like the case last week, this victim was also found along the Terminal Island Freeway. So I wanted to kind of clear up some confusion because I realized that last week we said we don't know how roads work. We do. I promise. We understand a lot better now. I understand a lot better now. So it seems like the Terminal Island Freeway is a rather small connecting highway between a non-highway and another highway. So it looks like it's just a transitional freeway, I think. I could still not understand how roads work, but I think that's how it is. But what is really important is this is the same road that last week's Wilmington victim was also found at. These does were found very, very close together, which is something I find very interesting. With that said, it makes me wonder if maybe they were a part of the same community. Because remember how we talked about the Belmont Shore community last week? It was a community of sex workers or LGBTQ plus community members. And I didn't see this talked about online. So this next little part is complete speculation on my part. But I have to wonder if maybe John Doe was also part of the Belmont Shore community, like last week's John Doe. That would possibly explain how he ran into Randy Craft. Especially if Randy Craft was using that area as some sort of hunting ground or somewhere to troll for victims. 
Exactly. We know that sex workers in the LGBTQ plus community are at a higher risk for violent attacks. So it makes me wonder if the doe would have been a part of this community like last week's doe and maybe Kraft picked him up because he fit Kraft's profile. He is a part of this vulnerable community, so maybe Kraft was able to lure him out of this place. I think it's definitely possible that Kraft was targeting this community especially. Obviously, that's not confirmed, but it kind of makes sense. Right, and it's just complete speculation on my part. It's just something that instantly hit me once I realized how close these victims were found to each other. Because they were both found in Wilmington, so you have to at least look and see if maybe they had a personal connection of any kind. Even if they didn't know each other personally, they could have been from the same community. Exactly. That's what I thought. All right, to move on from our speculation and to get back to the hard facts of the case, do we have any DNA, fingerprints, or dentals? According to the Doe Network, dentals, fingerprints, and DNA are all unavailable. So we don't have any of them? Apparently not. But he was, he wasn't skeletonized when they found him. Even if he was skeletonized, which he wasn't, you should be able to get dentals and you could try for DNA. It's not a sure thing, but why don't we have any of this? As far as dentals, I don't know if maybe they just weren't intact or it wasn't checked for and somebody didn't do their job correctly. And as far as DNA, this was still before the dawn of forensic DNA testing. So they wouldn't have even thought to. And we talked about this last week. Don't you dare tell me that he was cremated too. Well, we talked last week that it was rumored that the Los Angeles coroner cremated unidentified remains in the 70s and 80s. And on Reddit, I did find a comment about cremation on this Doe's case. So there's a high chance that this victim was also cremated before dentals or biological samples were acquired. Are you kidding me? Who was this coroner and why was he elected? I don't know, and I don't know. This is just what was seen on Reddit, so take it with a grain of salt, but it seems likely that this is what happened. I just don't understand why they would cremate remains before they were identified. This was not happening throughout the entire country at the time. If this was a nationwide, everybody was cremating their does, I could understand why they did it. But it doesn't seem like that's the case because I've heard of other cases from the 70s and 80s and this was not what they did with the remains. This might just be an LAPD in the 70s and 80s sort of thing. We know that they've had issues in the past. I really don't know what's going on here or why this keeps happening. And it is just from Reddit, so please take it with a grain of salt. But when I've seen it on two victims' profiles on different Reddit posts, it starts to take some weight. Imagine being a homicide detective and you light the crime scene on fire before you ever find the murderer. You wouldn't. You're destroying evidence. That's stupid. You're never going to be like, well, we took crime scene photos. I guess we're done and light the house on fire. How do you justify cremating a victim? I have no idea. And it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating because there's nothing we can do now. I do have some hope. Maybe they took some biological samples back then and maybe it's just sitting on a shelf somewhere that somebody hasn't found and maybe they can test it. but that's a long shot. And we didn't see that in last week's case. No, but I don't believe all hope is lost yet because I don't believe any case is truly unsolvable. With that said, let's move on to potential matches. Before we get into those, are there any exclusions? Actually, there are no exclusions on NamUs for John Doe. Remember, we don't have dentals or DNA though. Well, then that would explain it. How do you exclude someone if you can't test against them? Right. So you said possible matches. What do you have? 
I want to take one more second before we really dive into the potential matches I found, because I think there was something that could be very useful in looking for missing persons. One thing I found really interesting online on Reddit was the theory surrounding this John Doe's nickname on the scorecard. Again, this is from Reddit, but it's really interesting nonetheless. The suspected entry for this victim is called Hoth Offhead. That's a disgusting nickname. However, people online believe it to be a play on words. And if you're a little bit confused about that nickname like I was, I'm going to spell it for you. That's H-A-W-T-H and then Offhead. So Hoth Offhead. Right. Apparently, Kraft was known to put the scorecard names for victims as a reference he would only get. It's almost like some sick inside joke for himself. It's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. This man is so sick in the head. Yes. There is speculation online that this name references the John Doe's last name, like his last name could be Hawthorne, or that it references Hawthorne in Wilmington. Now, I looked up Hawthorne, and Hawthorne is a little city inside the Los Angeles metro area. And I found this theory really interesting. So I got a map that highlights Hawthorne. All right, so Hawthorne is a little bit more north than the sites we've seen so far. So it is still north of Long Beach, but it's a little further than Wilmington. So I have to wonder if maybe he was taken from Hawthorne, if that is the case. There's also the theory that this victim's last name was Hawthorne. Nonetheless, the connection that maybe his last name is Hawthorne, or he's from Hawthorne, Los Angeles, California, this could be really, really useful information when searching for missing people. So was it useful? At least, was it useful for you when you were looking? No. Okay. But we also know that not all missing people are put into databases or even reported missing. So this theory could still be valid and we just don't know who the missing person is because every unidentified remains case starts as a missing person, even if the report is never filed. There's also the possibility that the records of this missing person report could have been lost over time. Countless things could have happened to a missing persons report for this John Doe, like flooding or fires in police stations or their archives. I've heard of these things happening. We've all heard of these things happening. Or the records just could have been lost. So I don't think that this theory can be totally discounted. I think it's interesting. I don't know how useful it'll end up being, but knowing Kraft's history with playing on words and his sick nicknames... I think it is interesting and I think it could be useful. I just didn't find it useful in my searching. Madden, what are your thoughts on this theory? I think it's really interesting. I think it's definitely a play on words of some sort, whether that's his name or a town or maybe he found the victim by a Hawthorne shrub. I mean, there's really just no way of telling. Yeah, we can't get into the mind of a serial killer. So unless he starts talking or we figure out who this victim is, we might not know the play on words. So now, let's talk about the potential missing persons cases that could be matches to this dough. The first one I saw suggested on a Facebook group. I found the resemblance to be uncanny. This is the case of Timothy, or Timmy, Tim, Gerard McKernan. So I said the resemblance is uncanny. So the first thing we're going to do is look at a couple photos of Tim compared to the John Doe reconstruction. Madden, why don't you just tell us your thoughts? Okay, at first glance, I thought these two looked so similar. The reconstruction looks so much like Timothy, at least in this first picture that I'm looking at, which is a graduation picture. They have the same face shape, the same nose. It has that same exact 
little tilt to it. The same deep set eyes, low eyebrows. The only difference I'm seeing is that Timothy's eyes are blue and Ardo's eyes are brown. And then you gave me a second picture of Timothy to look at where he doesn't have a graduation cap on. And I actually see less similarities in this one, but still that same familiar tilt of the nose and just overall likeness. I see so many similarities. I gasped when I saw this. I was like, oh my God, this is him. But let me tell you Timothy's story. Timothy was last seen on April 23rd, 1973 in Petaluma, California. According to the Charlie Project, he left his house on bike and went to the supermarket for his mother to pay the utility bill. It's confirmed he made it to the supermarket, but at 1 p.m., his bike was found abandoned near the public library. He has never been seen again. When he disappeared, he was 16, had brown, medium-length hair, and blue eyes. He was 5'10 and weighed 130 pounds. He is a white male, and today he would be 66. So far, it seems pretty physically similar. If I'm remembering correctly, I think Timothy was a year younger than the doe is estimated to be, but we know that's pretty variable. All of this doesn't seem too strange or out of left field, but you kind of sounded like maybe you knew something that I don't. Yeah, unfortunately I do. As much as John Doe's reconstruction looks like Tim, and John Doe isn't excluded from Tim on Namus, I have very little belief that John Doe could be him. How come? It's the timeline. Timothy went missing on April 23rd, and John Doe was found on April 22nd, and likely died a few days or longer if he was frozen, like signs suggest. Wait, so Timothy's date of last contact is after John Doe was found. That's not even possible. It doesn't work. I really heavily debated bringing this case up. But there was debate on the Facebook post because I saw some people talking about if Timothy actually went missing on the 23rd or on the 22nd or if John Doe was found on the 21st or 22nd. I guess there was some confusion for a while on the exact dates. I guess there was some discrepancy on a couple sources. But after careful research, I believe that John Doe was found on April 22nd and Timothy disappeared on April 23rd. Also to poke a hole in this more, let me mention location. Because Timothy disappeared from Pet Luma, California, which is at least six hours and 48 minutes or up to seven and a half hours away from LA. I know this case seems so promising at first, but this is what happens when we get really excited just about physical similarities because making real matches between missing persons and John Doe's is a lot more than connecting facial reconstructions to missing person photos. Like I said, I debated bringing this up, but I didn't want you listeners to think that I just ignored this case and see it and be like, oh my gosh, this is the match. Why didn't they talk about it? Because it's not. It's almost 100% certainly not John Doe. I wish it was, but it's pretty impossible. You definitely had valid reasons for bringing Timothy up, but it's absolutely not him based on what you just told us. But you did say you had more missing persons, so who's next? I have one more potential match. The next missing person I have to talk about is Darren Conaway Rogers. According to NamUs, Darren was last seen when he left his home on Randy Street to walk to Downey High School on February 27, 1973. After this, he was never seen or heard from again. Did he disappear from the high school or on his way to high school? Where did he actually go missing from? I'm pretty sure he disappeared on his way to school. I don't think he ever made it. Okay, and where did he live? What city? He disappeared from Modesto, California. And this is between a 5-hour and 16-minute drive or an almost 7-hour drive from Wilmington, where John Doe was found. That seems like a pretty far distance, but the timeline does seem to work, I guess. Do they look alike? Here is a picture of Darren for you to describe and compare to John Doe. 
The picture of Darren, he's at a three-quarter profile angle, so it's not a forward-facing image like the Reconstruction is, but he has that longer brown hair that's swept to the side just like the Reconstruction. He has the deeper set eyes, but his mouth is a lot thinner, and his nose looks like it might be more bulbous. It's hard to tell from this angle, though. They don't look identical, but then again, I could see how they look a little alike. It's just hard to tell because of the angle of the photo. And like we said, the timeline for this case could work. It'd be interesting to know if Kraft was in the Modesto area around when Darren disappeared. Also, Arjondo is not excluded on NamUs as a potential match to Darren. The timeline makes sense for how Darren could have gotten to the LA area. If John Doe was frozen before he was discarded, that could explain the timeline even more. All in all, I think this is a solid lead. However, Darren was 13 when he disappeared and it's likely John Doe was between 17 and 25. However, we don't have dental records to double check that age estimation. Darren was six foot and 150 pounds when he disappeared. He is a white male and his eye color is unknown. He had blonde or strawberry blonde hair when he disappeared, and today he'd be 64. I think there is a slight possibility Darren could be our John Doe, but there's really no way to be certain with the information we have now. So Madden, what are your thoughts? I think it's interesting that you said his hair is strawberry blonde or blonde because it really looks brown in this picture. It does. I was really confused about that. It looks like there might be blonde streaks in it. Yeah, So it, it might have been a style that he was wearing at the time. I'm not sure. He really doesn't look 13 in that picture. When I saw that he was 13, I was shocked. Overall, there are definitely some factors that don't quite match up, but it's not enough to rule him out for me. Exactly. That's where I'm at. We don't have enough information right now to include him or exclude him, so I think it's a possibility. And like last week's dough, there is no testing that can be done because we have no dentals, fingerprints, or DNA, and his remains are likely gone. However, that doesn't mean that the case can't be solved. All it takes is for the right person to hear this story and remember their lost friend or family member or loved one that just disappeared in 1973. This case seems hopeless, but I know if it reaches the right people, it can be solved. I agree. Now we're going to jump a little ahead in time to 1980, and we're going to travel to Salem, Oregon for this next case. That's a pretty big jump in time. We're moving forward about seven years now, right? It's a jump, but if you'll remember, like we talked about last week, Kraft traveled for work to Oregon and Michigan. According to a December 1st, 1989 article from the Register Guard in Eugene, Oregon, Kraft, quote, killed an Oregon man, flew to Michigan on business, and killed two men there, detoured back to Oregon, and killed yet another man, then returned to Santa Monica, California in time for work the next day, end quote. This was all in one day? I don't think it was all in one day. I think it was in the span of a couple days. I think that last part about how he got back and killed another man and then was back in California the next day... I don't know. This is just the quote that the article said. It didn't give any information. It left it as it lies. That is wild. How do you act in such a brash way, killing four people in such a quick time span that you don't get caught? I don't know. In total, it seems that Kraft is suspected of six murders in Oregon. And according to the article, he was even indicted for three of the Oregon murders. Okay, but that's only half of the ones he's suspected for. Right. I don't think him being indicted went anywhere. Even the article said it's likely he wouldn't be tried for these cases. Our next dose story starts on July 18th, 1980. According to NamUs, on this day, the body of a male was found, quote, on the gravel shoulder of the northbound lane on Interstate 5 near Salem, Oregon, end quote. The sources pretty much all say the same thing, but the Doe Network says he was found one mile south of Woodburn, Oregon, this just seems a little more specific as to exactly where he was found. It's all in Marion County, Oregon. 
All sources ultimately say he was found in Salem, though. I just wanted to point that out because it's a little bit weird to read, but we're going to go with Salem. The first thing I noticed is that, yet again, we're seeing victims by the side of a highway. Exactly. According to that Register Guard article, Kraft killed and or disposed of all his Oregon victims that we know of along Interstate 5 in Oregon. Interstate 5, you said? Yes. I happen to know, as some sort of weird remnant from Driver's Ed, that odd-numbered interstates travel north-south, while even-numbered interstates travel east-west. So since this was interstate number five, going north-south from Oregon, or through Oregon, is it possible that Interstate 5 ran south from Oregon to where the other victims were found in California? Yeah, Interstate 5 goes directly from Salem to LA. In fact... It goes from Blaine, Washington, right around the border of Canada and the United States, to San Diego, which is the border between the United States and Mexico. Now that we've established that, I have a map to show how far Salem, Oregon is from the LA area. That way we can see how far Kraft's reign of terror actually went. From Salem to LA, it's about 14 and a half hours. It can be up to 16 hours, depending on the route. But looks like the shortest route is about 14 and a half. And do we know that Kraft drove on these Oregon trips or did he fly? You know, I don't actually know that. I was assuming he drove. I'm not 100% sure if he traveled by plane or drove. But he traveled a lot in a very far distance. Honestly, I'm just really impressed the police were able to connect Kraft to his crimes in Oregon and Michigan. Like we know now, he isn't convicted of the murders in Oregon. But police and everybody knows he was responsible. Other than the fact that we know Kraft had victims in Oregon, and other than the fact that we know the victim was found along the side of a highway, is there any other physical evidence connecting Kraft to this stove? It's really all in the MO. The other factor that really drives home that this man was a victim of Kraft is what was found in his system. Was Kraft known to drug his victims? Yeah, we mentioned this briefly last week because it wasn't relevant back then. But Kraft was known to lure his victims with drugs and alcohol. Unlike the other does we have talked about so far, we seem to know some things that I assume came from a toxicology report. First off, this doe was found just two or three hours after his death. The Register Guard article says, quote, the body of the unidentified man was still warm when it was found, end quote. But that's actually really good for a toxicology report because that stuff is still in his system. Right. What we do know is his blood alcohol level was 0.06% and diazepam was also found in his system. Just for reference, the legal limit in the United States is 0.08%, which is really close to what this man was at. And diazepam is, according to the National Library of Medicine, a quote, Fast-acting, long-lasting benzodiazepine, commonly used to treat anxiety disorders and alcohol detoxification, acute recurrent seizures, severe muscle spasms, and spasticity associated with neurological disorders, end quote. So since diazepam is an anxiety medicine, it's a depressant, and we know that alcohol is also a depressant, so these both slow down your system. But what happens exactly when alcohol is mixed with diazepam? So this is something I feel like I've always heard being mixed together in the true crime space, but I never knew exactly what it did. So I looked it up. According to the American Addiction Center's website, mixing Valium, which is a brand name for diazepam, and alcohol can cause a whole lot of issues, including confusion, disorientation, accidents, sedation, stumbling, dizziness, nausea, loss of consciousness, addiction, 
brain damage, coma, and even death. Those are some serious side effects. This seems like it's definitely not something you want to mix. And it does seem like it's a result of them both depressing your system. You're going to start to really lose control of yourself. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. But that wasn't his cause of death, right? His official cause of death is homicide by ligature strangulation, which again matches the MO. The cause of death and where he was found on the side of the highway really add up to this victim being one of Kraft's victims. What did this John Doe look like? This John Doe was white. He was in the adult pre-50 group, estimated to be between 35 and 45. And they measured his height and weight, and he was 5'6 and 160 pounds. His hair was brown and balding. He had blue eyes and a brown mustache. I actually have two reconstructions for you to look at. Madden, can you describe them to our listeners who can't look at them right this second? Those of you who aren't driving or working, you can go ahead and go to our website or Instagram right now to check out these photos. He has a bit of a rounder face. It's pretty wide. A flat-ish looking nose, but it's a pretty long nose. Kind of narrow eyes, short eyebrows. So he has a super far receded hairline that goes all the way to the back of his head, but he has hair kind of on the sides of his head, and I assume the back, but I don't have a picture of the back of his head. He also has a bushy mustache. Overall, my biggest impression from this victim is he looks a lot different than the other unidentified victims we have seen of Crafts. He's a lot older too, and he doesn't seem to match the profile. However, he's considered a victim of Craft. Maybe this was more of an opportunity thing for Craft. Right. I do think this victim was in that one killing in Oregon, two killings in Michigan, and then back to Oregon and then back home. Yeah, so this was more of a spree killing, not something he had time to plan out his victims. Right, that makes sense. Was this Doe found with anything? He was found wearing clothes. The other victims weren't? No, they they were found with no clothes. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, no, they were found completely nude. But this Doe was wearing a red t-shirt, Wrangler brand blue jeans, briefs, socks, and brown leather moccasin toe boots. However, the bootlaces and his belt were missing. This is slightly morbid, but do you know if either his bootlaces or his belt were used as the ligature? I don't know that. This victim is just so strange compared to the other does we have. And again, we are only covering the does. I'm not 100% well-versed in all of Kraft's victims, so this could be more within his wheelhouse. But I think it is very interesting to see the differences, but also there's the classic markers of Kraft, like the strangulation, the drugs and alcohol, and the disposal of the body. And everybody says that this is a victim of Kraft. All right, you know what I have to ask about? DNA, fingerprints, dentals, anything? We actually have available dentals, fingerprints, and DNA. I just think it's crazy how this case isn't in LA and they have all the things. They have the dentals, the fingerprints, the DNA, when at the same time in LA, they don't have even the bodies and the remains left. Regardless, these facts make me very hopeful and thankful that they have this evidence for this dough because it opens up so many different doors and avenues for potential identification. One thing I really want to point out is that according to the Register Guard article I've referenced a bunch, police believe that this victim was transient. If this is true, this means he could be part of the missing missing. Madden, I know that we've talked about this before, but could you just remind our listeners what the missing missing is real quick? The missing missing is a concept that there are people out there that are missing that may be homeless or don't have a good structural support system that they can check in with or they might be sex workers or transient or what have you where they just don't have anyone to notice that they're gone and if no one notices that they're missing they're never reported missing. Thus the concept of the missing missing. 
Unfortunately, if our John Doe was living a transient lifestyle, he could very well possibly never been reported missing. He could have easily slid through the cracks. It's always so devastating when this is a possibility in these cases. We need to do better about fighting for people who are part of this group to ensure bad things do not happen to them. And if the unfortunate times that they do happen, that there is a plan in place to not fail these people and let them slip through the cracks. They deserve to retain their identity, and it's so frustrating when people of the missing missing end up as a John or Jane Doe. Do you have any potential matches for this John Doe? Yeah, but let's start with the exclusions first. John Doe has been excluded from being David Thompson from Hennepin, Minnesota, and Edward Nye from Jackson, Oregon. That doesn't seem like very many exclusions, especially considering that DNA, fingerprints, and dental are available. You would think they would just rule out anyone and everyone that they could. Yeah, but we know funding is an issue, and we know time is an issue, so... That's true, but two exclusions is still better than nothing. How about potential matches, though? So yeah, I found a couple matches that I think could be this John Doe. But the problem is, it's based off physical similarities, primarily. With that said, I found four men on NamUs that match the physical description of this John Doe pretty closely. The missing men that match his description, or mostly match his description, are William Kism from Los Angeles, California, Jeffrey Hegwood from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Paul Fugate from Wilcox, Arizona, and Steve Lazanzi from Los Angeles, California. Now, we don't have time to cover all these cases in depth today, but we'll have their name as profiles linked in the sources. But there's only really one of these men that I think is a promising lead beyond physical similarities. Like I said, they all look similar to the sketches, and you can make an argument that any of them could potentially be our John Doe. But there is one man that I listed that is so similar, yet there is still so little known about him that I have a lot of questions about if this man could be John Doe. And that man is Steve Lasanzi. All the other men had one or two things that didn't quite add up to John Doe. Maybe they were older or younger, or maybe the locations just were a little further than I would think. But Steve, he's in the age range. He's the closest geographically, and he matches the physical descriptions. And he went missing from the area that Kraft was very active, Los Angeles. Here's what we know. According to the Doe Network, and echoed in all my sources, Steve was, quote, last seen on March 2nd, 1980, in Los Angeles, California, end quote. And when was the John Doe in Oregon found? July 18th, 1980. So for that to work out, he would have had to be kept alive, right? And transported to Oregon? Well, remember, they think that this man was transient at the time. Right, so that was just the last time he was seen. We don't know what happened to him after that. But he could have ended up in Oregon. Yeah. And then met Kraft. Yes. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So what else is there? That's it. What? I'm telling you that that is all we know. That is not all we know. That's one sentence. Remember when we did The Boy in Wanda River and the Charlie Project kept saying, very little is known in this case? Yeah. It's the same thing. But that's one sentence. There's gotta be more. Regarding the circumstances of his disappearance, this is all we know. That's crazy. I can't believe that's all they know about his case. It's actually insane. But I do have a photo of Steve if you want to take a look at it and compare him to John Doe. Oh my god. Zoe, that looks just like him. Yeah. And he hasn't been excluded or anything? Mm Mm-mm. That is uncanny. Mm Mm-hmm. You have to submit him as a tip. So for any listeners that might not be aware of this, Zoe and I aren't just talking about these cases. 
we are researching so much. And if we find a potential match, we are submitting it to law enforcement. We're not just talking about these to talk about them. Zoe and I have both personally submitted really good potential matches that we're obviously waiting to hear back on. And we might not hear back on since they're open investigations, but you guys, we are submitting matches and you can do the same. If you ever just want to try your hand at this, get on NamUs, get on the Doe Network, start looking at cases and you could actually solve a case from your couch. That's what the true crime community is supposed to do. All right, like I said before, the resemblance here is uncanny. The hairline is pretty much identical. It's that same receding hairline with the hair wrapping around the sides. The picture of Steve, the hair comes forward a little bit further, but that's negligible. The chin is another place I really see the similarities. And then the place where I see the most similarities is the nose. For me, their noses are a really distinct shape. They're both really long and flat, and they have the same shape at the bottom. Yeah. The only slight difference that I see is the eyebrows. Steve's eyebrows are really close to his eyes, and the forensic art, the eyebrows are much further away. That could be the angle of Steve's photo, or if he was transient, they could have grown in. Exactly. Also, in Steve's picture, he doesn't have a mustache, but if he was transient, it could have grown in. Facial hair changes. Exactly. All in all, these guys look so similar, and I'm really glad you saw it, because I spiraled. I spiraled looking for information on Steve, and I just found nothing. We do know a little bit about what Steve looked like. When he disappeared, he was 43. He would now be 87. He was 5'6 to 5'7" and 155 to 160 pounds when he disappeared. This matches John Doe. He is a white male with brown balding hair, and he has blue eyes. Everything about him fits the description of John Doe. And since we know nothing about the circumstances of his disappearance, except that he disappeared on March 2nd, he definitely could have made his way up to Oregon and started living a transient lifestyle like police think, and met Kraft and was found as our John Doe on July 18th. Plus, we know Kraft was active in both regions, so potentially he could have lured John Doe to Oregon. That's just speculation, but it's a possible theory. We know so little about both cases, so I think this case is so worth looking into since there are basic similarities. Even if Steve isn't our Doe, having an exclusion is extremely helpful. Especially because they look so similar, having him excluded would be just as beneficial so we can move past Steve if it's not him. Going back to Kraft's scorecard, was there a nickname for the Oregon Doe? Was it helpful at all in this case? Yeah, there's a nickname. The gross nickname that Kraft had for this victim was Portland Elk. What? What does that even mean? This has no meaning to me. Except that maybe he considered this man game from Portland? The only thing I could think of is maybe the victim was from Portland or Kraft picked him up there in Portland. I really don't know. Portland and Salem are only a 50-minute drive apart on the I-5. So it's very possible that John Doe was picked up in Portland and Kraft disposed of him on his way leaving Portland. And with that, I still think Steve could be the Doe. He could have gone to Portland. That's a bigger city. He could have gone to Portland for whatever reason and just was living it there and then met Kraft and... Especially if Kraft's MO was bribing with drugs and alcohol. 
when you're on the streets, it's pretty common to turn to that to survive, to make it through the next night, whatever you have to do. And so I think it would have been easy for Kraft to lure away someone in the homeless community with the promise of those sort of things. In this case, I think there is a lot that can be done. In the possible matches I told you about, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of information, which I think needs to be fixed. I think if we uncover more about Steve's case, then he could be better included or excluded as being John Doe. Also, I think the dental fingerprint and DNA records we have for this John Doe need to be utilized. I don't remember if Steve had a DNA sample, but I don't believe he did. But that's where investigative genetic genealogy comes in. Steve could totally have a relative in one of these databases. And if they put John Doe's DNA into that database, they could easily connect it and make his family tree and confirm that he's John Doe. Now, we have one more victim to discuss today. But this case is different than any case we've ever covered so far. Because this John Doe has been identified. But before we jump into who this Doe is, let's start back at the beginning of the investigation. On August 29th, 1979, in Long Beach, California, two plastic trash bags and a cardboard box that contained human remains were found in a dumpster behind Union 76 gas station, which is located at the 6280 East Pacific Coast Highway. Only his left leg, head, and torso were recovered. What was his cause of death? His cause of death is just listed as homicide, so we don't know specifics. I would also like to take a moment and point out that my source material for this doe, now identified doe, is very limited because the information was pooled since his John Doe profile is no longer needing to be matched to a missing person's profile. So I am working with very limited information here and I'm bringing you everything I could find. If we don't know his cause of death, I'm guessing he's not connected to Kraft because of strangulation or anything like that. So why is he connected to Kraft? Well, first, the way he was dismembered is pretty common to how Kraft dismembers. I'm not going to go into the graphics because it's disgusting and I don't think it's necessary, and that's what Kraft would want. But that's not all. Like the very first Randy Kraft victim we discussed, the victim was found sodomized with a sock that was left in his body when he was discovered. The main difference is he was found completely intact. He wasn't dismembered. This victim was dismembered. But the sock is at least a link. Yes. Not to mention that this victim was also found off a highway. Another signature of craft. You said that this doe has been identified. Who is it? You're right. This doe has been identified. His name is Keith Jackson. On August 6th, 1979, a young man named Keith Jackson left his home in Manchester, England. He was going on a six or seven week vacation to Los Angeles, California. After he arrived on August 6th, he was never heard from again. Is there anything else we know about this case? Do we know how he ran into Kraft or anything like that? Honestly, not really. There was nothing I could find. Like I said, there was so very little about this case, and I saw that echoed online that there is so little about him, especially since he's now identified. Initially, it seems that this victim was thought to be the nickname 76 on Kraft's disgusting scorecard. However, the general consensus is that he is actually the victim England because of where he came from. When was he identified? You said he was found in 79, right? Correct. So when was he identified? I found a little bit of conflicting information because initially I found that he was identified in February 2022, but then I saw a couple other places that he was identified in 2021, so I'm not 100% sure. Sometime between 2021 and 2022. 
It took 42 to 43 years since Keith was last seen for him to be identified. That just goes to show why you never give up on these cases because eventually something is going to shift and they will be identified. That's exactly right. I believe that these cases will be solved and that's why we just bring attention to them and try to get them one step closer. But what I find really interesting about this identification is how different the Doe description and the reconstruction are to Keith's description or his photo. For the Doe, it was estimated that he was between 17 and 30, he was white, between 5'10 and 6'3, 140 to 200 pounds, had brown hair, brown eyes, a scar on his left knee, and a chipped front tooth. However, all I could find about Keith's description was that he was white and 19. Like I said, pretty much all the information about him has been taken down since he's been identified, and that's why I think I don't have a ton of source material and not a whole lot about his description. But I do have a picture that I want you to compare and contrast to the reconstruction. The first is the Nick facial reconstruction, and the second is a picture. I think the only real similarities between these two pictures are dark hair, dark eyes, and dark eyebrows. I don't really see anything besides that. I can kind of see it at the upper cheekbone area. Yeah, the reconstruction has a more square face, a wider face, whereas the picture of Keith, he has a narrower face, it's longer, it's a little bit pointier. The noses don't look the same. Keith's nose is really straight and sharp. And then the Doe reconstruction's nose, it's a bit wider and it has more of a round tip. Overall, they don't really look that similar, but we do see that happen. Reconstructions aren't perfect. I think this case just goes to show that reconstructions aren't everything, which is just pushing the fact that physical similarities are not everything. How did they identify Keith as this doe? So I'm not 100% sure, but I did find that they had dental records and DNA available. So I would assume they used DNA to confirm, but they also could have used dental records or both, but my gut is telling me they used DNA. Whatever they did do to identify him, I'm just glad that they identified him. There's a lot more work to be done and a lot more victims to identify, but even getting this one identified is a great starting point. Randy Kraft was and is a horrible, despicable monster. He not only murdered so many innocent men, but he also took away the names of four of his victims. Well, now there's only three remaining without names. And it's up to us to fight for these does. Hope seems to be gone in most of these cases, but it's not. All it takes is for one right person to hear this episode, to hear these stories, so their memory can be jogged, or law enforcement can feel pressure to find the identities and do testing for these men, or charge Kraft with their murders. I have little doubt that these men are the victims of Kraft. He deserves to pay for the crimes he's committed, and I mean all of them. It's up to us to share these men's cases, so all these does can be identified. Thank you all for listening to the second part. These victims deserve to get their names back, so thank you so much for listening to their stories for two weeks. Please share their stories with your friends, family, or whoever else. And if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to us at. It really helps. Also, if you need an extra fix of true crime, be sure to check out our Patreon. We already have an extra full-length episode dropped there, and we'll be releasing another mini-episode next week. We'll link the Patreon in our show notes and our website. Our Patreon subscription is just $5 a month to unlock a full-length episode and a mini-episode per month. And, like we've said, a portion of the money raised from our Patreon will be donated to organizations helping to solve the cold cases of unidentified does. 
And we are still planning to donate to the group at Southeast Missouri State University for one of their cases currently up for DNA testing. We'll have all that linked in the show notes and on our website. Thank you for joining us on the Unnamed Doe podcast. We'll see you next week with a brand new story. This podcast was written and researched by Zoe Reese. All editing was done by Madden Delaney. Our theme music was created by Zoe Reese.